Welcome to the C21 podcast. Today we hear from Jesse Cleverly, creative director and co-founder of Wild Seed Studios, about how he's identifying and nurturing new talent, and John Guillamu, who runs production and gaming company Goodgate Media and linear TV prodco Red and Black Films. My name's David Jenkinson. Thanks for listening. Jesse Cleverly, creative director and co-founder of Wild Seed Studios, has been working in both scripted television and animation to plug the gap between platforms, financiers and creative talent looking for their first big break in the business. With filming underway on the 10-part family adventure The Last Bus, he spoke to Michael Picard about how the company is identifying and nurturing new talent, working with Netflix and the explosion of interest in animation. Wild Seed Studios is a is the company that specializes in scripted entertainment. Um, we focus mostly on audiences kind of below the age of 30, I suppose. Um, and we do both comedy and um, straight drama. And we also do both live action and animation um, and have made uh, animated projects for adults and for kids as well. So the, the, the sort of founding idea of the company is really all about finding and um, mentoring new talents. Um, because we felt that, you know, there was a problem, particularly, I think, with this shift to super premium um, as to how people get that first break and how they, you know, how, how do you de-risk a piece of new talent for a commissioner who can't afford to fail was sort of the question we started with. Um, and um, and I think, you know, however many years later it is now, I think we feel like we've answered that question. So, um, yeah, it's very exciting for us at the moment. Yes, that's one of the questions you always hear, I guess, commissioners talking about, isn't it? Working with new talent and mm. finding new voices and and you sort of answer, you know, suggested the question there when you, you know, how do you de-risk them? You know, yeah. there's still a lot of risk involved, isn't there? And, and one Absolutely that I guess broadcasters are, are still hesitant to maybe go full in on. Yeah. Um, so how do yeah, you, how I mean, do you I, I, you know, was lucky enough to kind of start my career uh, work. I worked for five years with Stephen Daldry at the Royal Court Theatre in London, which, you know, many people will know. But for those that don't, is probably the most famous new writing theatre in the world. So they did John Osborne's play. They did Edward Bond's play. They did all the Carol Churchill's first, etc. And when I arrived at the Royal Court, Stephen had just taken over from the previous artistic director and he you know, had a very, very sort of definite policy of bringing in a whole, you know, the theatre had become, you know, quite reliant on um, a very established group of fantastic writers, but 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 well-known and, you know, their point of view reasonably familiar to the audience, etc. And Stephen arrived and went, right, okay, we're just going to have a whole new slew of voices. And, you know, when I arrived there, the main house theatre was, you know, was was struggling along a little bit, 500 seats, et cetera. But the theatre upstairs, which was our little studio in the roof, was booming, you know. And, and, and that was, you know, really interesting to us, is why is our studio doing so much better and why do we feel so much more confident programming the studio than we do the main house? And I think it comes back to this, this, this question of the right to fail. And, you know, we had the right to fail upstairs in the studio. And, you know, but unfortunately, if we were more than, you know, less than half full for more than a week downstairs, we, you know, in the main 500 seater, we had a problem. And, and so, you know, in the end, we figured out, okay, we'll, we'll do all our, you know, we'll launch everything upstairs. Um, and 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 kind of bring that fearlessness through to everything that we do, and 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 that was you know incredible, you know, and you know, and in that time we had Martin McDonagh's first play, Jez Butterworth's first play, Sarah Kane's first play, you know, 
all of these incredible people, Connor's first play, Connor my first and the Weir, you know, and, um, you know, in particular, I think it was someone like Jez, you know, no one had ever heard of Jez. That was his first kind of production. And, you know, in that summer when it was boiling, I think it was 95, terrifyingly, you know, there was no one in theatres in London and we were packed, you know, we queues around the block. And I think, you know, that experience really early told me that if you can find a space in which to be fearless, you will find incredible. And then, you know, and in that space, you can mentor that talent. You know, you will give yourself the chance to finding, as it were, the next Jez and the next Martin McDonough and, you know, all these people. But, you know, if all you've got is the West End, how are you ever going to put a new voice on? Because it is too much of a risk and it's not a reasonable risk to ask a commissioner to take. So, so we started World Seed very much having had that experience at the Royal Court saying, okay, we think that digital technology and digi both in production and distribution allows TV production companies like ours or, you know, audiovisual production companies like ours, you know, to develop what is the equivalent of the theatre upstairs, but in, in, in video, you know, so... So we, we were able in that first four or five years of our operation, we raised a bit of money. And, you know, our promise to our investors was we're going to make 50, 10 grand pilots in three years. Um, and in the end, we made 30. So uh, we published 20 of them, but we got pickups on 12 in one form or another little commissions here. Some people bought the tape. Some people got really interested in the talent and and uh you know and 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 then develop new projects with them so we got a 60 percent pickup rate off the published pilots even though many of them were like super scratchy and bbc3 commissions we won a bafta with a couple of guys you know so so we were able to demonstrate that you know that fearless piloting and commissioning space you know does liberate producers you know to take new talent to commissioners who you know who in some cases look at you know, the pilot that you've made and feel that that is sufficient to de-risk them or, or at least to allow a conversation to happen upstairs, as, a, as it were, about why this might be an exciting thing to do, you know. And now, obviously, we find ourselves seven years later, you know, really starting to reap the rewards of that um, as the talent that we spotted in those first two years really has grown and really has, you know, become extremely you know, uh, talented and skilled and therefore in great demand because, of course, all commissioners quite rightly also know that they, you know, if you, you find that right, you find that new voice and it works, you know, you'll be made, you know, just as if you find that new voice and it tanks, you might be in trouble. So it's a high risk, high return kind of activity picking up new voices. But, but it's, you know, but it's a career making move if you have the courage to find someone new, you know, and and that works you know look at you know the end of the effing world look at you know fleabag you know these shows that we all admire hugely you know everybody involved in those shows quite rightly you know has been made you know because they were fantastic and brave and seemed to capture something about what becomes possible how have you applied the things you learn in theater to tv in terms of you know that journey that you take mm. you know an unknown writer on to filming a pilot or developing scripts and then you know, getting a deal somewhere or another show somewhere else? So, so you know, very crudely, we opened a, an open submission system with zero barrier to entry. We had a kind of reasonably prescriptive form that we asked any creator to fill in, which directed their thinking away from the high concept and towards the characters. 
um, because we felt that the, the mistake we see newer writers making most often is they get very seduced by a big clever idea but you know you sort of look and you look and you look and there's no one really who you think the audience are going to want to be or be with in the you know in the center of the show so so we would direct them towards that we would then if we found an idea I mean we were sent 4,000 ideas all of which uh, we fed back on individually and bespoke feedback um, and picked up 30 from those 4,000 ideas so there's a you know, there was a lot to get through before you found the ideas that you thought had the potential to turn into something. You know, and then we'd have a conversation or two with the writer just to make sure that, you know, the creator, to make sure that, you know, we weren't, you know, fundamentally at odds. And, you know, the reason that was very important to us was that we also felt it was really important not to give them compulsory notes. So part of our promise on that early piloting thing is we will give you notes, and that is part of what we think the mentorship you know, the purpose of the mentorship is, is we will give you notes, but those notes will all be optional and you will get to make the, the thing you want to make. And, you know, our, our um, you know, the bet we're making there is, you know, that really by letting a, a voice, by mentoring a voice, but really in the end empowering the voice, you're much likely to get, more likely to get something extraordinary uh, than if you script edit it into the middle of the road, which is you know inevitably sort of slightly what happens and um so so that was the way we did it was we we gave our creators absolutely free reign you know we we never commissioned a pilot based off a commissioner's brief because our experience was by the time you've got it ready you walk in and quite understandably the world has moved on and actually just follow your instincts there were a couple of times we went into a meeting with a commissioner and they told us that they would never for example with adult animation they would never commission adult anim animation and, and rather perversely, the next thing we did was make an adult, a couple of adult animation pilots, which the commissioner then bought, because of course, you don't want it until you see it, and then quality makes its own argument, doesn't it? So, so you know, I think it's our job to be going, well, you didn't know you wanted it, but now you see it, what do you think? And, um, you know, and, you know, thankfully, that has largely proven, you know, to be to be to be the case is that if you make something great and individualistic, and you know, that voice really shines, you know, people notice. So 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 that was the way we went. And, you know, my, you know, it's interesting, because, you know, if you think about the difference between scheduling a broadcast channel, and, you know, populating an SVOD carousel you know if you're if you're um scheduling a channel you know you're you're very very concerned with the brand and everything you commission obviously has to kind of fit with the brand and feed the brand and be you know and and then you're thinking about inheritance on the evening and you know and often and i'm sure you know anyone watching this will have had the experience that you go in and you pitch a broadcast commissioner and they go oh i really like it but it's not really oh, it's not like anything else we've got you know, which is a problem for them if they're understandably and correctly a problem for them if they're trying to populate and, and characterise this brand. Our experience of going to the SVODs and pitching is they go, oh, it's not like anything else we've got. You know, and that's because fundamentally those, you know, yes, there is a brand for Netflix and, and all these, you know, the Spotify's, the YouTube's, of course, there is a sort of brand, but it isn't quite the same kind of brand as a sort of an MTV or a, you know, um, or a cartoon network or something and and that's really because you know if you're programming that VOD you want every single tile on the carousel to 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 have the chance of attracting the person who didn't like the tile before you so you know you are in the in the business of of putting up a carousel that you know that has the potential you know to attract 
you know, everybody within a certain age bracket who's looking for something to watch. So, so I think that the, the individualistic, unique voice in an SVOD context becomes even more important because otherwise you've just got wall-to-wall kind of, you know, depressing noir detectives in rainy woods with, you know, dead, dead women in the, in the foliage. And, and I think that, that that isn't going to be, you know, the VODs that have really, really, you know, where the VODs have won is where they've been brave and, and really, really bet on something new, I think, you know, certainly things I've really admired and the things that I think the audience have really responded to have felt quite new, you know. Um, I mean, just in terms of the current climate, I mean, how has COVID affected your development process or, or changed production schedules? Yeah. How, how have you been affected and, and responded to the crisis? Yeah, I mean, we've been very, if this had happened last year, this time last year, you know, we that would have been very, very challenging for us. So, you know, as, as what is it, what is the phrase is, you know, the more I practice, the luckier I get, you know, so we were very lucky uh, in terms of where it fell and who we were working with and on what. Uh, so we were making we're making one r- r- really lovely uh, animation for Sky at the moment and discovered, you know, to our delight that animation just rolls through and we were able to, you know, send everyone home with the machines that they needed. You know, in certain cases, we, you know, sent them a decent table and a chair and a, upgraded their internet. But fundamentally, you know, that production just rolled through and we didn't even break stride. So it turns out animation is um, a very, very, you know, if such a thing exists, COVID-friendly genre. Um, And, you know, we can do the voice recording remotely. And, you know, we've had to innovate a lot and we're already, you know, already co-producing with India and Ireland. So, you know, we're already used to, there's a lot of Zoom and, you know, as you can imagine, a lot of Zooming going on um, and hangouting and all the rest of it. Um, then in terms of the other thing we had going on, there's this big live action family, uh, sci-fi for Netflix. And, um, you know, we were obviously nervous about that. Um, you know, things are very complicated for these platforms in terms of trying to figure out what they're going to try and hold on to and what maybe is, needs to be put on hold or even, you know, cancelled. So inevitably we had a moment of like, oh, please don't let us be one of the ones who, you know, get axed here. Uh, but I'm absolutely delighted to say that Netflix, you know, were, as they have been throughout, regardless of COVID, you know, very, very clear that this was something that they wanted to do and continue to support. So that allowed us to, um, you know, hold on to a few of our heads of department, for example, and essentially allowed us to just basically have longer in prep, really. It started shooting, I'm very glad to say, yesterday. Uh, so we are in business and COVID compliance. and. I think, you know, it's, you know, film crews are kind of the best people on earth to throw this challenge to, really, because, of course, that is what they do, is turn up in an inhospitable place, you know, and think, oh, we've got to somehow make this work and keep the camera dry or, you know, above freezing or whatever the challenge of the day is. So in a way, you know, and I don't want to belittle what they're having to do because it is onerous, no doubt, you know, but it isn't fundamentally requiring of them a, a different mindset from the one that they've had to have all along anyway. So, so far, we're only in day two, but, you know, we shot the day yesterday, no problem. I mean, inevitably, we're scheduled light at the beginning to give us all time to figure out what the protocols are. Our producer, Andy Moss, has made this brilliant, brilliant video for the crew about COVID distancing and red zones and green zones and amber zones on set and, you know, different levels of PPE, depending. I mean, it's all about protecting the cast. 
Um, that's the, the whole thing. I mean, obviously we want to keep everyone safe, but the cast are, you know, the bit that you absolutely can't replace if somebody unfortunately went down. So it's all, all about protecting the cast. And, um, you know, so far, I think everyone's just really happy to be back at work apart from anything else. Um, and because we're one of the first people to start up and we're in the West of England, we've been, you know, we've, we've managed to gather a really, really, ex a really exciting crew to do it. So, um, you know, I, I watch the news nervously, obviously, every day for what restrictions are coming in and what that might mean for us. But, you know, we, um, you know, we feel confident, as confident as you can, I would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's a caveat, isn't there, between, yeah. for, uh, for confidence at the moment. I mean, this is... Totally. So this is um, the last bus. Can you tell us yeah. a bit about um, just, I guess, the, there's some big themes, e ecological themes, environmental yeah. themes, AI yeah. is involved. Yeah. Uh, tell us a bit about how that all comes together. And, and then in terms of, I guess, Wild Seeds, um, you know, business plan, finding new talent, how uh, yeah. you, know, you found the creator on YouTube and, and sort of worked Absolutely. with him yeah. to create a Netflix show. Yeah. Yeah, well, that was the, I mean, for us, you know, the pickup, by, of this show by Netflix was kind of the, as it were, the soup to nuts, wild seed journey. You know, we, you know, as you say, we, we opened our submissions portal, as I mentioned earlier. One of the people who submitted us an idea was a writer called Paul Neefsey. Um, and it was a monologue he'd done of a, of a character. So we were instantly like, oh, good, character first, not concept. Um, and uh, it was he was wearing, I think, one of his mum's coats. He filmed it on his iPhone. It was lit by an angle poise, but there was something there, you know. And you know, you you know, you get a feel for it, don't you? You you hear it. You go, "Oh, this person knows about character and a story," and I'm interested. So, you know, to cut a long story short, we ended picking that idea up. We made that series with Paul's called Philip Human, which is basically the premise being a kind of Frankenstein's monster type character wakes up alone in a stately home and starts to vlog a detective journey as to why he's on his own and what the hell's happened. Um, and that was, to our slight amazement, someone actually bought that, and now very sadly no longer um, around SVOD called Fullscreen, uh, bought that from us and then... Uh, we pitched another idea to them of Paul's, which they picked up and we made as a scripted, a slightly more traditional scripted series with, you know, more than one character and, you know, innovations like that. Uh, that went really well. Paul, you know, all the time growing us, mentoring, mentoring, mentoring. Show turned out really well. Sadly, didn't get seen by many people because full screen actually folded. Uh, but the show was really good. And um, and I think, again, really helped everyone to go, okay, this, this guy's really growing in maturity. Um, and then he and I, I, you know, pitched him a very, very high top lane concept, which was, you know, kids running from a robot apocalypse on a school bus. I was really interested in this idea of, you know, we'd made a couple of movies that were road trips. And, you know, the thing that always, the, 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 you know, road trips by definition are rather episodic, right? I mean, you know, new town, new challenge, new nightmare to face, etc. So I was really interested in how could you take a precinct with you on a road trip so that you got both the advantages of a returnable precinct from production, but also in terms of character and places for characters to, 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 to find continuity and to, you know, to, to grow together in a way that the audience would sort of go, oh, okay, I get it. It's in the, I'm, I'm noticing that change because it's within the context of this, of this constant precinct. So, so I pitched him that headline idea. He then went away and wrote a little 10 minute, you know, tone tape almost going, well, about a scene from that idea, which we really, really liked. 
um, and made and with the you know and then we made a 10 minute pilot or proof of concept I would say probably so we made a 10 minute proof of concept with a young director who's sort of the other bit of this that we're really proud of is a young director called Drew Casson um, and Drew made it uh, and then we took that into Alexi Wheeler um, at Netflix, um, who uh, had just arrived as the Kids and Family Commissioner there with Dominic Bazé. And, um, you know, it was just one of those brilliant and delightful moments where you walk in with the thing that, you know, that the Commissioner's, you know, looking for. And, you know, we'd spoken to Alexi a few times when, you know, when he was in his previous job. And I think, you know, it all kind of came together in terms of what he was looking for and, and what we were proposing. And um, and so he then uh, said, right, okay, let's go. Let's, we really like it. Let's do some development on that. And, you know, and sort of said, look here, it's not really like, I mean, everywhere else when you go into development, you're delighted, but there's a large part of you that kind of goes, okay, and, you know, let the heartbreak begin because inevitably there's a big kill rate between development and production commission, you know, green light. But, but you know, Netflix and Alexia were like, oh, it's a bit different here. We're not developing things we don't want to make. And, you know, we're, you know, we really do want to do this. And, you know, it wasn't that we didn't disbelieve him, but, you know, obviously as a sort of wizened old hand, like well, I am, uh, you know, you inevitably kind of reserve a little bit of your heart, you know, and you kind of go, well, that's lovely to hear, but, you know, obviously, you know, I'll, 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 I'll just sort of protect myself slightly. But sure enough, you know, they behaved as if it was a happening thing from day one and they kept on behaving like that and they kept on behaving like that. And then, you know, you know budgeting began and proper scripting was greenlit and you know we were and sure enough you know so so we have been you know i mean that has been like the best experience we have had um of working with the commissioner not just because of the empowering how empowering that is but also just and rather it's it's rather you know i mean i don't take credit for netflix's policies with how they work with their creators but it's quite similar obviously to how we work with ours which is to really to find people you believe in and a project you believe in and then let the people go and do the thing they wanted to do um because like us they believe that's the way to really fresh unique things you know because you're not you know editing everything into a sort of reasonably similar you know territory so yeah, so, you know, work with the writer Paul and um, my kind of co-creative exec, who's amazingly fortunate um, to have uh, with us, is a woman called Sarah Mattingly. So she and I are working with Paul in development, worked with Paul for the last 18 months. Lots of other writers, you know, came into the room and, you know, broke, broke the story. Um, obviously, it's, you know, a serialised story, which comes with you know, some new uh, new challenges, I think, for, for episodic producers like us. Um, much more complex thing to work out how, you know, all these characters' journeys morph over time across a 10-episode 10, 10 arc, making sure all the hooks are in, you know, that you're trying to, you know, promote the behaviour you want, which is someone sitting there going, oh, just watch one more. Okay, just one more. Oh, God, one more, you know. So we're trying to get everyone to binge on the show, obviously. So it's a, you know, it's a complex thing. And, you know, I mean, I, I came, my first job in telly was actually in film. And so I'm quite used to, I was brought up on three act structure. And it kind of turns out that that kind of thinking is very, very useful in, in these new big serialized shows. So we had a lot of kind of skills and experience to draw on. And, you know, and as I say, yeah, slowly, slowly, you know, it was just everyone going, we're loving it, we're loving it, we're loving it, we're greenlit, you know not quite that easy but 
but fundamentally, you know, we, we had that confidence all the way through that we were not kind of in a kind of beauty parade, that we were actually very serious about it. Jesse Cleverly. John Guillamo runs production and gaming company Good Gate Media and linear TV prodco Red and Black Films. He stopped production on his biggest interactive film to date, The Complex, as the pandemic hit, but learned new skills and a new approach during lockdown to make five dates with a stellar cast. He feels this period has allowed him to sort the wheat from the chaff in terms of the projects on his development slate and focus on what he really wants to make. Red and Black has been, and myself as a producer, making films since 2005. Our first film uh, had a British Independent Film Award nomination and six BAFTA Cymru nominations. We won two, I think. Um, then we made, it was a long hiatus, we made a film then six years after that almost called The Machine. And thank God for us, uh, that film did pretty well. Um, we premiered in Tribeca with it. We got two British Independent Film Award nominations. We won one. We won three or three BAFTA Cymru Awards. Um, we played all around the world with it. That really gave the whole, myself as a producer, a real kickstart to start expanding into different things. I, I distributed that film as well, and we won a distribution award in the Screen Awards for it. Um, so it was a very formative experience for me, that film. And that then piece of IP that we developed then got picked up by Universal, uh, who then made a $9 million TV pilot out of the IP, which didn't go to series, but was my foot in the door with the kind of bigger world of larger budgets of television, which is um, something we're progressing in as well now. What's the experience of coming out of COVID mean for, for you and your production company? And, and what are the key, key challenges that you've got right now? Coming out of the pandemic for me really means I can go back in time to where I thought I would be back in March. We had released a film called The Complex. The Complex has become the most successful interactive film ever released by our distributors, who is, an, who is a specialist in interactive film. Done, done really well for us. I bet the house on it working. Um, and, you know, I, I've, I chose the project very strategically and approached the packaging of the project very strategically, knowing that we had distribution pipelines on Xbox, PlayStation, Nintendo, Steam. Um, so coming out of this side of COVID now or beginning to emerge from it tentatively sticking you know, our toes out of the door into the freezing cold, which may or may not be wolves out there, we'll see. Um, but um, I'm just, you know, really trying to um, get back to where I thought we would be. I suppose in that, in that period of time, did you make any decisions about doing things differently going forward? As soon as lockdown happened, like every creative and producer out there, we realised that there was, um, you know, what seemed like an existential threat to the business and to be able to make films. Um, and, you know, this story really then started with where all good stories start, which is with mum. So I went to see mum and she was like, well, here, Michael Sheen's making this movie over webcam and what have you. Why, why don't you do something like that? And I was like, well, yeah, okay. I was like, then slowly started to get my head around that and started talking to other people about it, started watching films that had been done in a scenario like this, which was controllable. And if COVID did cause us to lock down fully, I needed as a producer to be treating my investors' money in a responsible way that I knew that I could deliver what I said I was going to deliver, even in a very hostile environment, and not take any risks and, yeah, um, well, not take unnecessary risks anyway, but also do something that was hopefully commercially viable, not just shooting for the sake of shooting it. Um, and 
in that whole melee of, you know, the gases coalescing. Um, I had a chat with my director of the complex and he's a young man. He's, you know, he's 27 years old. He's out in the, the modern world of dating. Um, and there's this thing, you know, there's video dating um, is, a, is a format. And as soon as I'd realized that, I thought, hey, video dating, is that interesting that I wonder beyond COVID, whether that will actually start to be woven into the fabric of the dating world, almost as a pre-date. You know, you start dating someone, why go for a meal to find out some person, you know, you, you don't like them or share the same views as them when you can do that pre-date actually like this, in the comfort of your own home, whether with or without COVID. So we then kind of devised a romantic comedy based, an interactive romantic comedy based on that setup called Five Dates. That then converged with another theory I had, which was, of course, everyone, Everyone's in the same boat. Everyone's worried. Everyone's not going out generally. Um, and um, everyone's wondering how to do things. And I thought if I can present an opportunity to actors to be able to, you know, to be able to act and, and do something fun, good and contemporary and reactive, then hopefully we'll be manage to maybe bring in some cast who, um, you know, at a lower budget, we maybe wouldn't be able to reach, but now maybe we can. And that's what ended up happening. We ended up bringing in, you know, Georgia Hurst from Vikings, Mandip Gill from Doctor Who, um, uh, Tahim Modek from Maisie Williams' new show, um, uh, Marissa Arbella, Arbella uh, from Industry, Lena Dunham's show, the HBO BBC show, um, and, and, you know, just some, like, really, really quality uh, talent. Um, uh, and they have been... An amazing melting pot. It's the first time I've worked with some, you know, young people um, as a group in that age group. And of course, you just forget how much energy they've got. It's brilliant. You know, we've got, a, you know, a, a, an artist called Sinead Hartnett, who's, who's also working on the show, who's like, you know, got songs with 40 million views on them. Uh, amazing group of people, basically. And the energy on set was very much can do. Um, and I really, really enjoyed it as as an as an experimental experience but the end result is super cool like we've just we just finished the trailer the film gets released this month uh and uh, well actually it's been pushed back a week to the third of november um and just the just the energy off the trailer and it just makes you smile like there are a bunch of people in a rom-com we're in we are where we are now in covid everyone's a bit you know down in the mouth and it's just a different energy so what has come out of that for me and the mess we were in was I lent into the opposite and what we could do. And, and I think we pulled it off. We will see. <laughs> we, what about development going forward? Um, what have you got on the slate and what do you, what are you finding when you're going to, to either roll those shows out and get them into production or talk to commissioners about the new stuff? Is everyone just so, so overpowered that they've got too much to look at? All, all the producer strategies at the beginning of this mess uh, of COVID that was very similar, which was, okay, well, we can get to actors, they'll read our scripts and, you know, that gets the front of the queue because they've got more time than they normally would have. And everyone kind of employed that strategy, basically, it seemed to me. Um, and so we, you know, my, my head, or either that or going deep into development, you know, and, and, you know, using that time very wisely, which is a smart thing to do. And so in the deep development route, Personally, we've had a TV project called Yellow, which is um, uh, with Odiri Awuji and Nene, who, who's writing it. Nene Awuji, great detective show set in um, in Nigeria. 
So we've kind of gone headlong into development on that, put a lot of energy and time behind that. And now we're starting to package it with some quite exciting people. What it has highlighted for me is that the projects that I really care about and those I don't, you know, that's perhaps a harsh thing to say, but you realize what you really care about is I suppose the, the, the positive to take from that and what I want to put my heart and soul into. And there are projects in there that what, what remains standing, my full weight is behind. Uh, and, you know, the, that is sorting the wheat from the chaff. It's been a good period for that. It's like, what do I really want to do? Um, you know, um, and, that, and that, that's, this has been a good period for that. We've been, you know, we've been crazy busy. It's, you know, we're in production on two films concurrently right now. We've got one shooting outside during lockdown. We've got one shooting inside. The lead actress is in Paris. We've got Colin Salmon in it um, uh, and, a, and a wonderful actress, um, um, a French actress who's in Avenue 5, Amanda Iannucci's show called Julie Dre. Um, and she's shooting right now um, over Zoom like this. Um, that is happening with my head of production running that at the moment. Um, so the period for me, my interactive films, we've just had to make them smaller to be responsible. And my development slate, I've really focused on what I really, really, really want to do. What do you think audiences are going to want to watch going forward in terms of genre or style? My instinct tells me that the most successful shows moving forward post COVID or coming out the tail end of it are going to be things that lean into a much more warm and um, happy world that we'll want to see on cameras, you know, uh, in front of us is what I would think, you know, I can only judge by my own instincts and, the, and what I want to see, but I know when I saw the five days trailer, I was really happy. And that I noticed that feeling was something I hadn't, I don't feel all the time. <laughs> and I was like, that's interesting. This is a good feeling. And I forget, you know, you forget how, how much that's missing in the current environment, really. Um, we've got a show which um, is a, it's been in development for a little while now, which is in a dystopian, you know, future where a lot of the things that have come to pass are in the script as fiction and now they're fact. And I'm just like, do I really want to make that? It's become a documentary. <laughs> you know, the fiction has become, you know, what is real. And it's just like, that feels very prescient and everything. And, you know, pat on the back for giving, to having the foresight to see it. But, at the same time, do you really want to see that as entertainment? Inclusive um, conversations have, have, have risen to the forefront. What, what sort of mood has, has this all put, all put you in? And why do you think everything's come to the head in the way it has done over the past sort of six months? You know, I, I feel very fortunate in, in where I am in the sense that, you know, I, I'm not just a black person in Britain, I'm a black person in Wales. And Wales proportionally has certainly got, you know, less people of colour than London. Um, you know, which is much more of a melting pot. And, you know, by extension, Britain is a lot more racially harmonious than a place like America. So, uh, you know, I, I don't feel, look, I'm aware that prejudice is out there. I do tend to bulldoze through it a lot. And, and I'm also blessed in the sense that I'm not employed by someone. And that is a very different position to be in. I've always been self-employed. I've, you know, I, I, I've always been self-employed. Um, since I was 16, really, I, 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 you know, I was a professional poker player. Uh, I then became a property developer. I then went into television film. You know, I, I've now, if you contrast that with someone who has got boss above them, who has got some kind of motivation against them, then that's a, a horrible environment. I can't even imagine to be in. And I, for, for all those reasons, I feel very lucky to be where I am. Um, 
um, you know, not to get that off point too much, I suppose, but the opportunities, I suppose, that are now come to the fore is, you know, it's it's wonderful. And, and I, you know, I will be pursuing every opportunity we can as a, as a black owned business. And I think, I suppose what I would say is that it's important that the gatekeepers start to reflect society properly, whether that's women or being disabled or being of an ethnic minority of a certain kind or, a, you know, orientation in terms of who you're attracted to, whatever that is, our gatekeepers just need to represent that. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I, you know, luckily now I'm getting into a position where I am that gatekeeper. I can green light stuff myself and, you know, I don't intend to disproportionately tell stories that are of a certain ilk, although I am naturally interested in stories about immigration because my father was an immigrant and, you know, Nigerian stories, like I mentioned with Yellow, there'll be a natural leaning to where my heart goes. Um, uh, and you can only really do stuff you're passionate about. And, you know, to an extent, it's up to me to fight that corner. Um, and to, that that naturally marries with what your own interests are. Um, and, I'm, and I'm sure it's, you know, I'm sure it's the same for many different types of people. But yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm very keen to rebalance what I can. I've got a special interest in economic diversity. Um, and, I, and I think that, you know, my mum was from a coal mining town um, and, uh, you know, still lower middle class background, but nevertheless, you know, was, was from quite a poor place. And, you know, I, I grew up um, in, you know, an ex-mining town myself. And uh, so giving people opportunities who come from disadvantaged backgrounds like that. And there's, of course, crossover into ethnicity there as well. And that, that happens. But the, the current environment is is a good place to be and, um, and it is good that it's getting the attention that it is. It's just sad that America is in the way that it is currently. What did you learn about yourself it, uh, when, when pause was pressed? I imagine we, we all had time. I must admit that during the period of lockdown when it happened first, from a personal point of view, I, I was obviously very frustrated as most people were not to be able to go to the office. I, you know, I, I'm used to, you know, getting up at half six and staying here in this office till half six. You know, I do 12-hour days generally, and that's kind of... So I am I used to be more of a workaholic before I had a little one um, because I'd work weekends as well, and now I don't do that as much um, because otherwise, you know, I'm going to get in trouble at home. Uh, <laughs> so, so there was... Anyway, my point is there was a frustration about not being able to do that, but then I got my work life sorted in my house, and what I noticed by having my daughter home and being with my wife is that you can spend a lot more time with your family and the people that you care about. And although there is a tension of someone who's three years old and shouting, you want your time while you're on a video call like this. And you know, that is very difficult, but the blend of that for all of us in these environments has been actually very grounding, I think, and has shown you a more human side about me to other people and to other people to me in terms of, oh, they've got lives as well. They've got, you know, seven-year-old running around in the background, giving them shit and, you know, <laughs> doors slamming around the house and, you know, various things. And it kind of humanised people. And I I think that as much as this period has been one of great frustration for a lot of people, I think it has shown us that we're all vulnerable and human and uh, that we have to try and have more compassion, which is something important to remind myself of, you know, on a daily basis. John Guillermo. That's all for this episode. Subscribe to the podcast for more daily interviews from around the content world. And if you like it, give us a rating. Every little helps. My name's David Jenkinson. Thanks for listening.